Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths that we just sang. Lord, we thank you for the fact that they are truth, they are reality. It's not just some false hope we're chasing, but Father, it's an anchor that we can hold on to. Thank you, Lord, for the work of your son, Jesus, to reconcile us to you through what he did on the cross. Thank you for the life that's available to us uh, through his resurrection. And Lord, thank you for the fact that we have this relationship with you. You want us to call upon you as Father. And as such, Lord, you, you want us to bring our needs. You want us to bring our hurts. You want us to bring our concerns to you. Father, there's so many situations in our world, in our community, in our families, in our church body. Lord, we can feel those situations are hopeless, and Lord, we ourselves can feel helpless about what can be done. Father, I know I've seen the photos this week of, of folks fleeing the waters from the collapsed dam in the Ukraine. And while they're trying to flee for their lives, Lord, they're facing artillery fire. And Lord, it doesn't make any sense. And Lord, we ask you to bring peace to that area soon. Father, we, even on the way here this morning, we drive by folks that are living in tents by the side of the road. And Lord, we don't know what to do. It seems like a problem that's too big to solve. Lord, we bring that to you, Lord, and show us how you might have us participate. Father, we think of relationships. Sometimes they're within our own families. Sometimes they're among friends. Sometimes they're inside our church. And they're broken and they're fractured. And it seems like there's no hope for healing. And Father, we bring those to you. And Father, I know recently it seems like there's a number of folks in our body who've received diagnoses about cancer. In some cases, Lord, it seems like you've begun a, a healing process through the miracles that you've led doctors and scientists to bring to bear. But in other cases, Lord, the, the word is not so good. And we pray for comfort for all of those individuals, for peace for their families. Lord, we pray for your healing hand upon them. Lord, we thank you for giving us a ministry in all this. Lord, you've called us to be ambassadors of yours to participate in a ministry of reconciliation that you might be using us to bring folks to you, to, 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 to bring them so they have reconciled with you. Lord, show us how, it, how, would you, you, how you would use us as ambassadors of your grace and peace. Father, thank you for listening, and we lift all these prayers to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Instead of having a scripture reading this morning, uh, would you please join me in proclaiming together as a church the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting, amen. Please be seated. Eugene, come share with us. All right, brothers and sisters, we have made it. This is our final and 24th sermon in our series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. So congratulations to you all, and thank you for journeying with me through this series. It has been my first since joining the PBCC family. And that word, family, really is the best word for describing what PBCC has come to mean to me over the past 18 months. And isn't that our hope whenever we join a church? We hope to form friendships and relationships that will make our church not just a place of worship, but a place, a family that we can belong to. Now, it doesn't always happen, but when it does, it feels magical. Complete strangers become our closest confidants. People we'd never imagine associating with become spiritual brothers and sisters. It feels magical, and we'd call it magic if we didn't already know that this is simply what God does. He calls things that aren't as, aren't as though they are. He creates good things out of nothing. He creates friends from strangers and families from outsiders, unity from difference and communion from division. This is what we all affirmed just a moment ago with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic or Universal Church, the communion of saints. We believe that the Church of Christ is universal, that it encompasses all believers, however different or divided they may appear to be, whether by culture or space or even time. We believe this, but do we experience it right here and now at PBCC? Can we say that we experience membership in the family of God at our church? Maybe our answer is yes. Maybe our answer is no, and maybe our answer is maybe. All three are possible because the truth is that we don't always experience this familial community at church, do we? I wouldn't be the first to admit that sometimes I feel more of a sense of familial community in other groups of which I am a member. I'm not the only one who has experienced that magical transformation of a group of strangers into a veritable family elsewhere. It's the stuff of storybooks and movies. In fact, my favorite depiction of this magic was a TV show I'm sure many of you have at least heard about and maybe you're fans of as well. It's called The Office. What initially began as a miniseries about the painfully relatable and unintentionally comedic daily lives of a group of office workers has evolved into a story about people learning to accept and to care for one another, like members of one big paper-selling family. And the best part of the show was that however crazy the coworker drama got, or however zany the office pranks became, the relationships were believable. However, unexpectedly, their friendships were believable. Because somewhere deep in our hearts, we believe, we all do, 
that we should be able to find acceptance and belonging wherever there are people to accept us and belong to. That we were created for community by a God who is a community, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And if we should be able to find that acceptance and belonging anywhere, it should be in the house of that God, in the church of Christ. And in fact, the early church did become a place where people found acceptance and belonging. It became a place where Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, men and women, saints and sinners alike could all find acceptance and belonging. It became a place where the magic of family was real. Now, perhaps it's because of his time on The Office, but even actor Rain Wilson recognizes the magic of the early church. In a recent interview conducted by frequent Christianity Today contributor Russell Moore, Rain Wilson, best known for playing Dwight, observed that never before in the history of humanity had a more diverse group of people gathered and been welcomed, loved, and accepted than the early Christian church. Rain Wilson is not yet a believer, but even he believes in the magic of the early church. Even as a non-believer, he has a vision for the modern church, a vision for what the God-shaped hole in his heart is looking for the church to be, a vision not unlike the Apostle Paul's. And a vision of the church is exactly what Paul left the Colossian believers as he concluded his letter to them. Let's take a look at it now and ask ourselves how we might grow as a church into the acceptance and belonging we affirm in the Apostles' Creed. Our passage this morning is Colossians 4, 7 through 18, Paul's closing greetings, just that green section there. In first century Greco-Roman society, writers often ended their letters with a handful of greetings and instructions, things that didn't fit the body of the letter and didn't need more than a sentence or two. We have several examples of this in the New Testament, and these sections can be tempting to skim. There are names we might not recognize and unfamiliar references to events we don't know about, and there might not even actually be a unifying theme, at least not explicitly. But I believe the Spirit rewards our curiosity. So just as we took our time working through the opening greeting of this letter, let's take our time making our way through these verses. Paul's closing greetings may be divided into four sections, with each section being focused on a different person or groups of people. The first group reference are the messengers tasked with delivering the letter to the Colossian believers. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. Who is Tychicus? Well, in the book of Acts, we learn that he accompanied Paul through part of his travels through Greece and Macedonia. And in the letters to Timothy and Titus, Tychicus is seen serving alongside Paul, visiting and ministering to churches and individuals on his behalf. Paul, unsurprisingly, therefore, gave Tychicus a glowing commendation to the Colossian believers who apparently did not know him personally. In addition to delivering Paul's letter, Tychicus was given another objective. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus was also a pastor, and Paul was confident the Colossian believers would be blessed through him if they received him without hesitation. 
Paul sent another messenger along with Tychicus. Tychicus is coming with Onesimus, Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. Onesimus is also commended to the Colossian believers with glowing affirmations from Paul, our faithful and dear brother. Unless there were other communications between Onesimus and the Colossian believers, this commendation might have surprised them. Onesimus had history with the Colossian believers. Paul reminded them that he is one of you, and that history wasn't totally positive. Onesimus was a runaway slave. But in an unexpected turn of events, Onesimus met Paul and began living up to his namesake. He became useful as a messenger on Paul's behalf. We'll be hearing more about Onesimus next week when our brother Bob teaches us from Paul's letter to Philemon. But for now, let's move on to the next group of people referenced in Paul's closing greetings, the co-ministers of the gospel with Paul at the time of writing. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings. Like Tychicus, Aristarchus had spent much time with Paul. He also accompanied Paul through Macedonia and Greece. And what's more, the book of Acts records Aristarchus being arrested with Paul. Hence Paul's commendation, my fellow prisoner. For Paul, there were few higher commendations than to share in Christ's sufferings and be persecuted for the gospel. But not everyone with Paul had always seen it that way. Alongside Aristarchus, Paul sent greetings from Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. This Mark is attributed with writing the Gospel of Mark in partnership with the Apostle Peter. But Mark's history with the Gospel wasn't always so impressive. In the book of Acts, we learn that Mark had initially been invited to join Paul and Barnabas in spreading the Gospel throughout the eastern part of the empire. Unfortunately, Mark, also called John, left Paul and Barnabas partway through their mission trip for undisclosed reasons. Later, when the opportunity arose for Mark to rejoin Paul and Barnabas, Paul refused to allow him, despite Barnabas' willingness to give him another chance. In the words of Acts 15, 38 to 40, Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas. Now, why did Mark leave Paul and Barnabas? We're not sure, but Paul clearly took his departure as a desertion disappointing enough to cause Paul to deny that he could be trusted again so soon. Yet here in Colossians 4.10, Mark appears alongside Paul in his imprisonment. And what's more, Paul commanded the Colossian believers to receive Mark graciously when given the chance. You have received instructions about him, he wrote. If he comes to you, welcome him. Whatever kept Paul from trusting Mark before was in the process of being resolved. They were reconciling. But it seems that Mark's reputation had not yet been fully rehabilitated, so Paul had to encourage the Colossian believers to welcome him. Next up, Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. What we are told about Justice was also true of Aristarchus and Mark. These are the only Jews among my coworkers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me, Paul wrote. To be clear, Paul was referring to these men's Jewish background, not their then-current faith in Christ. 
But belief in Christ does not erase ethno-cultural different distinctives. These men brought their Jewishness with them, and as a former Jew himself, Paul was grateful for it. Considering how often he was rejected by non-believing Jews, and how often he probably had to explain his Jewish background, traditions, and even his Jewish jokes to Gentiles, it must have been such a relief to be around fellow believing Jews, at least from time to time. Speaking of Gentiles, Paul sent greetings from one who was well known to the Colossian believers. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. What an encouragement it must have been for the Colossian believers to hear that one of their own had been praying ceaselessly for them. And perhaps prayer was Epaphras' calling card. His ceaseless prayers were mentioned earlier in the letter. To bring it up again here suggests that prayer was something in which Epaphras was particularly gifted. Speaking of giftings, Paul mentioned another gifted writer. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, sends greetings. This Luke is credited with writing both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, which together form a continuous narrative. It is one of the most beautifully composed and constructed pieces of literature in the whole of the New Testament. Luke's attention to detail and burning heart of compassion for the poor, the outcast, and the marginalized is apparent throughout its text. If any of the gospel writers could be described as a social justice warrior, it would be Luke, and he shows us how to do it. The final person in this group is only mentioned briefly. Demas sends greetings. Though nothing else is said about him here, Demas became infamous for also leaving Paul, just like Mark, 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10. Do your best to come to me quickly, sorry, that should say me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Unlike with Mark, we don't know for sure what happened to Demas. Did he ever return to the gospel? Did he ever return to gospel ministry? How curious that the Spirit would include this unfinished storyline as part of the inspired and authoritative Word of God. This concludes the greetings from Paul's co-ministers of the gospel. Next, Paul took time to greet specific groups and individuals in Colossae and in the neighboring city of Laodicea. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea, Paul said. The city of Laodicea was not far from Colossae. The believers in each area would have had similar experiences and frequent enough contact with each other. It's not at all surprising that Paul would instruct the Colossian believers to share their letter with the Laodicean believers. It's also not surprising to learn that Paul had also written a letter to the Laodicean believers. Paul wrote quite a few of letters and that he wanted them and the Colossians to exchange the letters for mutual edification. After this letter has been read to you, he says in verse 16, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. This command gives us a peek into the way congregations within the early church shared their resources with one another and cooperated in the work and the ministry of discipleship in the gospel. At the end of verse 15, Paul greeted an individual and their associated house church. Give my greetings to Nympha and the church in her house. 
It is unclear if Nympha and her house church were the brothers and sisters at Laodicea or a separate gathering in the same city. But what is clear is that Nympha was a woman. Both her name and the possessive pro, uh, feminine possessive pronoun applied to the house confirmed this. Throughout his letters, Paul recognized the contribution of women to the ministry of the gospel. Paul made sure to greet Nympha by name and to recognize the role she played in making it possible for her church to gather regularly. Without Nympha, there was no church. The only other individual greeted by name is someone named Archippus. And Paul had less of a greeting and more of a command for him. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. Now, was this a warning or an encouragement? It's a little hard to tell. Maybe it's a little bit of column A and column B. Archippus had received a ministerial calling from Christ, and Paul exhorted him before his brothers and sisters very publicly to carry it out. We're still reading about it today. And that brings us to the final group of people mentioned in Paul's closing greetings. This group consists of a single person, the Apostle Paul himself. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The reference to writing with his own hand reminds us that Timothy was likely taking dictation for Paul as he composed his thoughts. Why did Paul need someone to take dictation for him? Well, probably because Paul had poor eyesight. Consider how Paul signed off in his letter to the Galatians. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Paul's penmanship was so distinctive, it became his calling card as he explained to the Thessalonian believers, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. And he had to write this way, probably because he couldn't see that well. This detail humanizes Paul for me. Paul had weaknesses. Paul had impairments. Paul wasn't perfect. Paul had to write with big letters because he couldn't see that well. Maybe it was due to some kind of lifelong issue, or maybe he was just a senior living a senior life. Also humanizing in his imprisonment. I mean, I don't have good eyesight either, so. <laughs> Remember my chains. Paul did not write this letter in a cushy leather chair at a beautifully stained wooden desk in some fabulous mansion enjoying his apostolic earnings. No, Paul was imprisoned, enchained, forgotten by most, wrestling with what it meant to trust and obey God and to share the gospel of Christ. Paul was in the thick of it, just like the Colossian believers. He did not condescend to them from some pedestal of sainthood. He wrote to them as a fellow servant of Christ, wishing for all God's grace to be with his readers. Grace be with you. All told then, Paul referenced or addressed 12 people or groups of people, including himself, in his closing greetings. And perhaps we can get something out of each of these 12 greetings, inspiration to be a faithful minister like Tychicus, to always be wrestling in prayer like Epaphras, to look for that lost letter to the Laodiceans, to welcome people named Mark. But perhaps the safer way to apply this passage is rather to zoom out and to look at the picture painted in Paul's closing greetings. If we take each of these 12 people or groups of people as brushstrokes, what picture would, would they paint together? What vision would they cast? Well, I'll tell you what I see. First, I see the faithfulness of Tychicus, 
Paul's trustworthy and reliable co-minister of the gospel. And I see the bravery of Aristarchus, Paul's willing and steadfast cellmate. And I see the unrelenting prayerfulness of Epaphras. I see these beautiful brushstrokes of faith and hope and love and action, and it inspires me. But then, then, I see Onesimus, and I'm reminded that faithfulness doesn't grow overnight. That sometimes it only comes after we've run and made some mistakes. And I see Mark, and I'm reminded that even big, loud, public failures don't have to be the end of the story. And I see Paul's initial refusal to trust Mark, and I wonder, was that really the right thing for Paul to have done? Even if God continued to bless him and to use him, should he have done that? And then I see Demas and his story shrouded in mystery, and I'm reminded that sometimes we're unsure how it'll all end. Sometimes we're full of doubt and unbelief and need help to see why we should keep going. I see these brushstrokes of struggle and failure and confusion, and it's encouraging to know that I'm not the only one. And then looking a little more, I see justice completely unknown to us with a name he didn't even use. Imagine being named Jesus at that time. I see the Laodiceans, a whole group of unknown people living somewhere else, reading their own unknown letter. I see Nympha, the only woman more than likely marginalized in her culture, told she doesn't have a place, that she can't be useful, that she shouldn't make a way for the men. And I see Luke, and I remember the gospel he wrote for all who are unknown and otherized and marginalized. I see the tension and the mystery and the ache for more in these brushstrokes, and it's teaching me to look for what I often forget to see. And finally, I see Archippus, new to all of this, unsure of his convictions but needing a push, needing the church to speak courage into him. And I see Paul on the other end, seasoned, nearly blind, but seeing so much more in the Spirit sharing his wisdom and experience, passing on what he's received. I see this cycle of brushstrokes and it's humbling and refreshing and emboldening to me. And when I zoom out and I look at all these people and their stories brought together and this handful of greetings and instructions, I see an incredible diversity of individuals at different places in their journeys with Christ, with different giftings and experiences and hopes and scars and questions and doubts and convictions and callings, they're all here, brought together by their pursuit of Christ, by Christ's pursuit of each of them, each of them centered on Christ. And I imagine how messy this unity was, how fractious this community could have been. How was an honorable minister supposed to serve alongside a runaway slave? How was a fearless martyr supposed to get along with a former deserter? How were the Jews supposed to break bread with the Gentiles? What would a rookie minister have in common with a veteran apostle? And how would a wealthy, powerful woman work alongside dirt poor men in a society as patriarchal as theirs? How could the early church feel like a family? But it did. It wasn't easy. And it didn't happen overnight. We have the letters in the New Testament to prove it. But the early church worked at it, and they became the family they were created and redeemed to become. And never before in the history of humanity had a more diverse group of people gathered and been welcomed, loved, and accepted 
than the early Christian church. And it was like magic, except that it wasn't, because it isn't. This unity amid diversity, this partnership amid disagreement, this fellowship amid differences, even theological differences, this is simply what happens when a group of people are brought together in the same place by something bigger than each of them, something too big and too beautiful to let diversity and disagreement and differences divide them. And when that bigger, more beautiful thing bringing people together isn't a thing at all, but a person, and that person shows each of them acceptance and tells each of them that they belong, that it is safe to be here, that is their birthright and inheritance to belong, then that magical transformation from division to community becomes more than just a wish come true. It becomes their purpose. It becomes their treasure. It becomes the calling and vision they work in all God's grace to build right here and right now. And as we conclude our study of this letter for now, I wonder if this can be not an ending, but a renewing of our own vision for PBCC. Can we be a church where the faithful work alongside the runaways, where the brave uphold the fearful, where the unknown and the other and the marginalized are welcomed, prayed for, and empowered, where wanderers aren't afraid to share the doubts they carry, where the lost aren't turned away, where the guides admit they're just as needy, where addicts find compassion for their pain instead of judgment for their chronic addictions, where outcasts find a place to belong, where the dysphoric find peace with themselves, where acceptance is the lived reality, both individually and communally, where everyone works together to extend this acceptance to as many people as we can fit in these walls, and can we work to realize this vision together right here at PBCC? But how do we do this work? What does it mean to do this work? How do we become and continue to grow in being more accepting of others? Well, brothers and sisters, that may be the Lord calling. I just want to create, you know, room for the spirit to move, right? Brothers and sisters, it begins with accepting ourselves. It begins with extending belonging to our own lonely hearts. Quoting Leviticus 19.18, Christ commanded his disciples to love their neighbors as themselves. The command to love our neighbors is grounded in the assumption that we are loving ourselves in God-honoring ways. That's how it is grammatically constructed. In other words, that we are looking at and speaking to, forgiving and encouraging ourselves the way God does by his spirit in Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you see yourself? Do you see yourself the way God sees you? Do you say to yourself the kinds of things that God says about you? Do you show yourself the same forgiveness God is willing to show you in Christ? Do you encourage yourself the way his spirit, the counselor and comforter, loves to encourage you? Do you accept yourself the way God accepts you? Do you let God tell you that you belong, and do you let yourself agree? Or do you know better? Do you see more than he does? Do you hold yourself to a higher standard than his? Do you believe more in your ability to motivate yourself with threats and condemnation 
than in the power of grace to change your heart. Many churchgoers fall into the trap of thinking they are pursuing righteousness and holiness and calling it out in others when in fact they are just rejecting themselves in ways God would never reject them. Instead of receiving the power of grace, they wield fear against themselves. And all the while, they attempt to show others grace and acceptance. And they might fool themselves and others for a time, for years, or even decades. Many churchgoers operate under the reverse of this command. Love your neighbors, even if you don't yourself. But God will not be mocked. He cannot be fooled. And most of us will be torn apart by the inconsistency of this before long. The truth is that attempting to show others acceptance when we haven't done the same to ourselves inevitably ends in resentment and bitterness, the very opposite of genuine acceptance. You see, brothers and sisters, genuine acceptance can only be offered by those who have received God's acceptance amid their brokenness. We accept others in their brokenness to the degree that we have found ourselves accepted in our brokenness. In other words, the most accepting people are those who have looked most deeply into their brokenness and have found staring back at them the grace of God in Christ. Such people approach others' brokenness not with condemnation, but with curiosity. Not with exclusion, but with embrace. Not with rejection, but with acceptance, compassionately joining into the conversation the Holy Spirit is already having with others about their brokenness. This was the so-called magic of the early church. May it be the truth of the modern church as well. May it be what characterizes PBCC, what characterizes the way we treat others, the way we treat one another, the way we treat the world around us. May we receive the grace of God and show that same grace to the fearful and to the runaway, to the brave and to the fearful, to the gifted and to those who are hesitating, to the one on their knees in prayer and to the one with doubt in their hearts, to the unknown, to the other, and to the marginalized. May we accept one another because we each have been accepted by Christ. I'd like to invite the praise team to return to the platform and to give us time to think and to let the Spirit say whatever he has to say to each of us this morning. Hopefully he's not on hold right now. (laughs) And if you feel called, if you feel called to show Christ's acceptance and belonging to others in a direct and explicit way, not that this is the only way to do it, but if you're looking for a way to do it directly and explicitly, allow me to suggest one option. I'm looking for leaders to start new connection groups focused on sharing accountability and discipleship. Maybe you've heard of these other connection groups, rock climbing and ballroom dancing and pickleball and all those things, and you're like, well, I just kind of want to sit and pray with people. I just want to sit and create a space for people to share what they're going through. And that, you want that to be the focus of your group. Well, we need, we need more. I'm looking for more. I'm looking for more who can come alongside other members of our congregation to provide that kind of space for each other. But if leading a group isn't your thing, I'm also looking for mentors who are willing to make themselves available for one-on-one discipleship. I'm I'm not saying you guys all have to mentor me. I mean, that would be too many problems for anyone to deal with, right? Um, I have a whole cadre of people who are helping me, including Bob. Um, (laughs) 
But we're looking for mentors who are willing to provide this one-on-one discipleship for other people within the congregation who are looking for some encouragement and guidance from someone who has walked the path a little bit further than they have. But maybe you'd like to be part of an effort to create a welcoming space for non-believers to learn about the gospel. Your heart is more drawn this way, to accept and to extend welcome to those who don't know Jesus yet. We'll come to the luncheon today in Fellowship Hall at 12 p.m. and learn about how you can get involved in an effort that we're trying to get off the ground. The first 30 people in that room are guaranteed a sandwich. (laughs) But if the only thing holding you back in all this is that you're too broken or too inexperienced or have too checkered of a past to consider yourself someone who can extend grace and compassion, giving, welcome, and a sense of belonging to others, then think again. Remember the picture Paul painted for us. Remember the vision he cast. Never before in the history of humanity had a more diverse group of people gathered and been welcomed, loved, and accepted than the early Christian church. May this be said of our own church and of all the church as we center ourselves on Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for your patience and your grace with me. Um, And so let me offer you a word of benediction. May God fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people and the kingdom of light. Grace be with you. Be well.